Well, Koto, welcome to Circuit Cast, talk on the visual arts and moving image in Aotearoa and beyond. And it's critical panel time, this pod discussing Matthew Barney's five hour, 50 minute film, River of Fundament, which was recently screened in a partnership between Adam Art Gallery and the New Zealand International Festival of the Arts at Wellington's Embassy Theatre. And joining me to discuss it are art writer and novelist Thomason Slay. Kia ora to you, Thomason. Kia ora, Mark. And also art critic and historian Martin Patrick. Hi, Martin. Hi, Mark. Let me start by describing an opening scene from River of Fundament. A grizzled, shit-caked man from the American past with a urine drainage bag a-dangling emerges from a brown, bubbling river beneath Norma Mailer's apartment. He climbs a staircase, enters the apartment where dinner is being prepared and goes into the bathroom. Here he wraps a turd he finds in the toilet bowl in gold leaf and returns it to the bowl. Upon doing so, a second Norman appears and proceeds to bugger him. Semen on the floor is Mercury, slithering under the door to a bedroom where a similarly shit-caked ancient woman is cutting herself. We're 15 minutes in and the opening credits haven't rolled. I think like the film itself, there's a lot going on in that opening scene. It's a hell of an experience. Martin Thomson, how did you fare? Uh, I'm not sure. It was. Uh, <laughs> it took me quite uh, a long time to kind of decompress from that. Uh, I didn't know quite what to expect, but I've, I've been uh, kind of checking in with Barney's work since the early 90s, which was, in a sense, a period in which he became a kind of rock star of American art. Um, one thing that, I mean, we might get into that later, but I'm, I'm curious how, how he might be read today, because he's had a a fairly long career now, and then, of course, very famous for his works through the late 90s, early 2000s, the Cremaster cycle, which was a similarly long and ambitious cycle of films. Uh, River of Fundament, uh, three acts, as you say, nearly six hours, and pretty relentless at times. Um, some very interesting points to it, but kind of a... Uh, a strange viewing experience, quite unlike many others. Mm. How was your experience, Thomason? I have to uh, be quite frank in saying that I sort of approached it with a really open mind because I'd never, um, haven't had a great deal of interest uh, or found Barney's work very compelling in the past. Um, the work that I know the best is the drawing restraint cycle, which I've seen various iterations of in galleries and exhibitions. Um, currently on Kind at, of around the world. Adam Art yeah, Gallery. It's currently on at the Adam Art Gallery. Um, and I'd always kind of had a fair amount of cynicism about the work. There's a certain amount of machismo that's a lot has been written about it in Barney's practice, which just mean it didn't necessarily um, have a great deal of interest to me. And a lot of the antecedents that he had always kind of referring to were writers or, or uh, men from this American past that I didn't have a great deal of engagement with. So I had a kind of a kind of loose cultural association with it, I guess. Um, but going to River Fundament, I was kind of up for it, I was open for it, and I have to admit it didn't really change my opinion of Barney's work um, a great deal. Uh, I found it sort of um, the same sort of kind of portentous uh, sort of symbolic level of uh, metaphor, excuse me, that is in his other work. But as, as Martin said, there's I guess there's so much in the work that it sort of renders 
almost a, a critical reading of it, very kind of complicated and difficult because it contains within itself almost uh, arguments against any argument that you can make against it just because it's so long and there's so much. So, yeah, I'm really looking forward to talking it through with you guys. Yeah, a film of excess. Well, we should say, I guess, that it's loosely based on Norman Mailer's sort of giant novel, Ancient Evenings, which also divides critics greatly. And Mailer's take on the stories of the ancient Egyptian gods, if we want to put it really, really simply. I mean, I wondered if you felt like you needed to know Mailer's work or the book Ancient Evenings or indeed have a knowledge of ancient Egyptian history to appreciate this more. I sort of I did my thing where I sort of deliberately didn't read too much about it before I went in to see the work because I wanted to see how much I could engage with it on a kind of emotional level or something, I guess, or visual visual level. But I felt like afterwards when I went back to read some of the um, more sort of detailed Egyptian mythology and some of the uh, the narrative that he was drawing on from Mailer and and um, those mythologies didn't really feel deeply compelled to, to read that much about it afterwards. It didn't seem to add too much to what was already a very kind of dense and um, and sort of hard to untangle web of references for me. Well, well Barney's work is very much a, a kind of hybridized amalgam of all kinds of references. He's making references all the time. Some questions arise about whether you're in sympathy with the kind of things he is. It's sort of like uh, watching a real passionate fan about certain things. And I think in terms of his fascination with Mailer, I mean, Mailer is, is certainly someone to be fascinated with. He was a, a very important figure in American 20th century culture, both in his novels, but also in pop culture. I mean, he, he would uh, run as a political candidate. He appeared in films. He was on talk shows fighting with people like Gore Vidal and others who were very important figures of the time. But the ironic thing about the film in some ways is that it uses Mailer as like an entry point into the film, but it's not a very accessible entry point because if you're, uh, I mean, I'm uh, verging on 50 and and I have some knowledge of Mailer, but I think a lot of people who are under their 50s, 60s, or even 70s and with some interest in American culture here or or, or from America would not have quite as much of a you know, um, knowledge of why Mailer is important. So the initial scene uh, is meant to be a, a sort of wake for Mailer, who died uh, a few years ago now. Beautifully recreated uh, apartment. Uh, a sort of meticulously yeah. uh, created, uh, recreated New York uh, apartment, books on the shelves, and then this star-studded cast of characters. You have Salman Rushdie, you have Luc Sante, a really important American art critic. You have Fran Lebowitz, who's a great witty satirist. And I found that a little jarring because people like Fran Lebowitz and Lawrence Weiner and Elaine Stritch, a Broadway icon, were far more witty and engaging in some ways than Barney's own presence in the film at time, even though, as you mentioned, he's quite costumed in a really extravagant way and so forth. But, you know, I kind of wonder if in some ways Barney is trying to connect himself with a kind of very anachronistic world of arts and letters that is disappearing or in some sense has disappeared except historically. And so that's a strange entry point. Well, I guess that was an interesting question for me, whether this was a film of our times. You know, this is sort of roll call of the American avant-garde, for want of a bit of a word, perhaps. It, it felt very 80s to me as a film, and it's also it's kind of male heroic excess and... Uh, 
reminded me of the films I saw as a teenager in the 80s, you know, and I just wondered if... Wow, I wonder what films those were. Oh, (laughs) you know, the the Greenaways and all that, so forth. Sure. It was a very Baroque, lavish kind of vision. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It felt, and that kind of feast extravagance, I I, I just felt like it was of a different time to me. Yeah, I, I was quite disappointed actually talking about, as a film for our age, some of the stuff that I had pre-read before going in was about focusing on Detroit and the failure of the car industry. So we've, we've spoken about this scene in the um, Norman Mailer's apartment, but running concurrent to that, that there are these scenes outside in the world that run parallel where various cars are transmogrified into other materials, sort of iconic cars. You've got the Chrysler Crown Imperial and the Pontiac Firebird and this Ford Crown Victoria police interceptor cars. These are of the three different acts. I'm quite interested in that narrative in terms of the decline of this kind of industrial age um, America, you know, and and I've always found this quite interesting in Barney's work as well, that um, this fluid state that he's interested in of material moving from one state to another. Yeah, yeah. um, For me, actually, those scenes, those big crowd scenes just felt incredibly flat considering the number of people who were involved. Um, Everybody seemed to have been directed to be incredibly sort of dour and sort of po-faced and serious. And I kept thinking like of all the other operatic scenes I've seen in other contemporary and not so contemporary operas where there's a huge amount of energy from the crowd. But I don't know what you guys felt. I just felt like in those scenes there was no, it was just very, very flat. I agreed that it felt very, very loose, like a sort of a, in this very in-between failed space between a sort of an actualized performance and a film. It's, but it's in some in some ways, and in the there's an accompanying book that you receive when you go in a libretto with all kinds of information about the the loose narrative, the sung parts, because it's indeed trying to be an opera, and there are quite a few opera singers involved and actors who kind of chant sing their lines, but. Within this uh, libretto, it talks about these sequences as kind of flashbacks. And the curious thing is that they're kind of inserted into a fairly claustrophobic almost play that's set within the Mailer apartment, which then you find out is actually sitting on a barge that's sailing (laughs) down next to Manhattan. And so that's a pretty amazing sculptural feat. But, But those exterior performances, the way they draw upon history of performance, like there's a extended sequence that refers explicitly to the artist James Lee Byers, who I think is a really fascinating, um, interesting uh, uh, contemporary artist that, again, a lot of people that might be fairly opaque unless you go and read about James Lee Byers or he's uh, wearing very, um, Matthew Barney is clad as James Lee Byers wearing a top hat, uh, gold suit and and then kind of driving out in this amazing kind of car and crashing. One thing about those sequences is they, they do refer to Barney's interest in sculpture. I mean, essentially, Barney was doing performances around sculptural installations, and that's what the Cremaster films built out of. And so I, I often really think his strength is relating to materials and yes. kind of a lavish, almost alcohol chemical transformation of materials that are also clashingly juxtaposed. And that has very little to do with this overarching narrative, which seems more like a motif than a narrative. And Thomas and you were talking quite rightly about some of these notions about fluidity. And I do think one of the claims that you could make for Barney is that in the early 90s, he was making a lot of work that tested some notions about 
gender bending and identity and fluidity uh, of, of, of ourselves. But what's kind of contradictory and intriguing about that is it came from a heterosexual male artist who came from the American Midwest, essentially, or West. So he's kind of, these claims are kind of moving out from the center, as it were, rather than moving from the periphery. But then in River Fundament and, in so, and, and throughout his work, he has this fixation on a kind of masculine greatness. And when he cites people like Norman Mailer, the sculptor Richard Serra, and then you know, it, that, that seems very contradictory to hold on to that when he's obviously very conversant with the fluidity and the shifting nature of ourselves, which is, I think, one of the strongest things about the work, if you read it kind of conceptually. And I also think in terms of, of writers, why not? I mean, today, I think much more about the influence of people like David Foster Wallace, Kathy Acker, lots of people that kind of supersede in some ways that nexus of kind of the Hemingway, Mailer, yeah. Updike mm. kind of uh, style of the, the sort of mid-20th century. Barney works in the cinema and the gallery. Does this work have to be in the cinema? Would it be better in a gallery context? He has shown it probably closest to here at Mona in Tasmania with the sculptures as well, whether that would make this a more satisfying experience. Yeah, I think for me having that extra, that sort of addition of the sculptural um, experience would would really add something for it because it's always suggesting at it constantly, isn't it, in the film? It's always pointing to it and pointing to, particularly in the in the scene where um, at the end of the second act where the Pontiac firebird, I think, gets basically smelted down into that incredible river of molten uh, lava, essentially, and <clears throat> into those moulds. It, it's, it's always pointing to that external, the external world of the, of the film as a sculpture. So I think, yeah, having that a kind of another narrative woven through as a sculptural experience would be really would be really incredible but I don't know how they did it at MoMA the six the sort of almost six hour film as a I'm going to say the word digestible which which seems um, (laughs) particularly apt uh, as a sort of digestible filmic experience in the gallery space whether you have it's starting at certain stages or something that you can weave in and out of Um, I don't know how other galleries have have attended to that problem but I think I think from some of the interviews that I saw, Barney is particularly um, specific on the type of theatres that he wants it to be presented in. He's really interested in operatic spaces, he's, and obviously he's got a had an amazing selection of those. Um, it was the same show at Mona was presented in Munich, I think, and it's been in various European opera houses, which reflect its grandiosity, I guess. <laughs> but one thing that's really curious is the difference between artists who take on a cinematic language and... Uh, filmmakers, because, for example, you could see maybe some, as has been pointed out in some reviews, maybe superficial resemblances to other filmmakers, such as Terrence Malick or others. But I I really enjoyed, today I was just scratching my head, going back and looking at uh, various takes by critics I respected on Barney's work. And uh, Jim Hoberman, who's a longtime uh, film critic uh, used to write uh, for the Village Voice and he's written many books on film back in 2003 and he's referring to Cremaster but I think it applies in some ways he says quote if Barney's wardrobe is the best thing about his movies it may be because for him drama is psychodrama and cinema is essentially a recording device and delivery system unlike Maya Darren who invented this heroically narcissistic mode in the 1940s Barney has little sense of editing. His idea of camera placement is banal at best, but the shot is the thing. 
Every image is designed to impress with its cost, splendor, or outlandishness, unquote. And I think, you know, that really sums up this kind of excessive quality to the film without a kind of really interrogation of the cinematic language that certain filmmakers do. Yeah, and I think for me as well, uh, that quote sort of, in a way, Madden sort of articulates figuring sort of passing out the problem that I have with it is that the sort of layering listening to you talk about is it James Lee Bry as a writer and stuff I uh, who I had no idea about there's this incredible layering of narrative and metaphor and symbolism but for me it's not I don't think it felt after this six hour kind of watching experience a cohesive or fulfilling whole it more felt like all these parts were kind of shrouding each other or the complexity was sort of fighting against each other so that there was nothing kind of satisfying I could walk away from. It it was frustrating in that way. And I guess what strikes me also is that so much of the film is completely over the top as in your description of the opening 18 minutes of the film because someone was referring that that's the amount of time before the credits and it's pretty action-packed as as it goes. You know, it's so excessive and grandiose to the point of being this kind of postmodernist Baroque camp experience, but it takes itself so seriously. So seriously. Kept kept wishing for a bit of a, a wink from Barney to say, I kind of acknowledge that this is ridiculous and you're along with me. Yeah. And I think one of the things about the, the you know, at, at times you were looking for a kind of humor. One of the things that I thought was really leavened sometimes is the fact that he did cast some exceptional people. Oh yeah. Like for example, he had Milford Graves, one of the great free jazz drummers of the 20th century who played with Albert Eiler. He played with so many, John Zorn. He's, he's a fantastic emissary of, of a certain kind of experimental music. And also to note that we haven't mentioned so far really is that Jonathan Bepler, who worked closely with Barney on this and in the Cremaster cycle doing the music, I mean, it's it's a very ambitious kind mm. of score. Yeah, it's co-credited yeah. as and well. And it kind of, it's, at times I wished I could almost like listen to some parts of the the score without seeing the film. And of course you can close your eyes, but then you're wondering what am I missing next of these kind of l- you, lavish. You didn't yeah. have the sense of some kind of immense process of being reborn five times. Over <laughs> the structure of it. No, I, I just wanted to say quickly that I don't want to discount the fact that there are some incredibly beautiful and sort of superlative moments in it. And I'm glad you brought up the music because I think my favorite bit, well, my favorite sort of section of the whole thing and unsurprisingly it's probably the least gross part of the whole thing was at the very beginning of Norman Mailer's Wake there's a section where all the kind of glitterati of the art world are coming in and kind of talking to each other and moving through the space and it's before everything all the objects start disintegrating into a kind of fecund rotting corpse of various kinds but the editing of that was incredible and the music of that bit was this combination of all of these incredible musicians both warming up and tuning and then playing almost simultaneously, which I thought was amazing. So I I don't want to sound like there were parts of it that didn't hold me because there were sections like that that I really enjoyed. Yeah, Thompson, could I ask you a question around the treatment of women in the film and whether they're subjugated because it's something that's been written about and I think there's a bit of debate about it as to Mm. how you felt around that treatment of women. Yeah, that's a really interesting question because I've been thinking about it quite a lot. I mean, from the section that you talked about in the setup, Mark, where there's a, this character who's a, a kind of, um, I think, a spirit guide along with Matthew Barney. There's a woman who's sort of covered in gunk throughout the whole thing. And she's, there's a scene at the very beginning where she sort of slices her leg and both of her 
Vita turn into swords or something. I felt like women in the film, there was a lot of violence done to them, but they were often the enactors of that violence in themselves, which I thought was quite interesting. So they weren't often, um, I guess, kind of oppressed or subjugated by an outside force, but were kind of doing unto themselves as others were doing unto them. So I thought that was quite an interesting balance, which was sort of set up in the introduction. But one thing I thought as well, that there's a lot of kind of layering beyond the kind of feminist question, the one thing that I did find more problematic was the use of, there's a lot of Native American culture and Mayan yeah. culture, and that um, it's especially woven through the, the music and also in various set pieces throughout, which I just really felt was just like another layer, an, uh, another sort of unnecessary layer and due kind of consideration didn't really feel like it, it was given to it. It was just another mashed in cultural reference which really fell flat to me yeah it felt yeah. kind of hokey to me really i don't know Martin. but it's uh there have been a lot of people who've commented on this sort of superficial treatment of a kind of exoticism in the in the film like that it doesn't you know really jibe uh, and isn't integrated I, I do think also one thing to note is that that, that in terms of the mailer theme overall very problematic figure also not a <laughs> in so many respects, but Mailer has been an obsession for Barney since early on in the Cremaster cycle, his previous uh, series of films. And, and Mailer, before his death, actually appeared in one of those films as Harry Houdini. So there's, again, this kind of mixing of, of references and costuming figures to be other figures and so forth. And then Barney himself enacts a role uh, in the Cremaster cycle uh, drawn from Mailer's book, The Executioner's Song, based on uh, Gary Gilmore, a killer uh, in, in the U.S., and so a very famous case of the 1970s. So there's, so he's had this long-standing interest in that work. Uh, whether it can kind of translate to the audience, I'm not sure, and, and Mailer's certainly a very problematic figure in terms of his relations with women. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely it. worth mentioning that you've got Norman Mailer in there who stabbed one of his wives, and then also the libretto also contains um, sections of text from... So we've got Walt Whitman, Ralph Waldo Emerson, and also William S. Burroughs, another American writer who murdered one of his wives. So in terms of uh, yeah. kind of violence against women in the literary um, uh, sort of history or... It wasn't an intentional murder, oh, uh, just just to clarify. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, yeah, there's just yeah. There's certain problematic uh, um, um, uh, sort of issues there, I guess. Well, and, and one might note that Mailer's first uh, collection of essays was called Advertisements uh, for Myself, and he was one of those figures like an Andy Warhol of the same era who was very interested in the idea of the publicizing of a writer, you know, and this sort and and that's an interesting parallel to Barney's uh, fascination with kind of being such a public figure as an artist, even though he's kind of um, uh, reclusive on one level, you're not likely to encounter uh, him in the same way you might some other pop stars and figures, but the prominence of his work has been pretty uh, huge since uh, his emergence in the mid-90s. Apparently one of the contemporaneous reviews of Ancient Evenings described it as a book of benumbed egocentrism, which I really liked. <laughs> <laughs> also, currently at Adam Art Gallery, uh, there's a survey of Barney's site-specific performance drawings, as he calls them. It's running till 24th of April. I was quite interested with your thoughts on the relationship between those 
quite different works to this work. Martin, you probably know more about this than me, but there are subtle references all the way through connecting both the River of Fundament drawing restraint and the Kriya Master. There's that symbol of Matthew Barney's with the kind of ellipsis with the line through it that, it that appeared at certain stages in the River of Fundament. So I feel like he can't escape this all-over work sort of sense of interconnection between his practice. And I've seen the drawing restraint works in various iterations around the place over the years and I really enjoyed seeing the works actually as a as an oeuvre or connected. They um, they made a lot more sense to me, seeing them displayed like that. Although I thought the Adamark only could have put a few chairs in that space. Yeah, so they're they're installed in, in twelve ceiling mounted monitors and in, in, in rows on either side. It's kind of rather a, a lovely installation effect. Although I didn't find it necessarily convivial, as I think you're saying, really to to to, to spending a lot of time, time with, with them. Yeah, I'm not sure. I think it's a fairly it's a really elegant installation of Indeed. that work. And then we often walk through galleries uh, looking at work on the walls. And I, I mean, I, I don't know that people always watch time-based work all the way through, or even if that's the intention of that particular installation. But I do think it it's a very interesting way of treating that very particular space, which is more often devoted to single single channel videos or, you know, smaller exhibitions, uh, but I think that it's a very interesting thing for anyone who has or hasn't seen River of Fundament to definitely check out that exhibition. Yeah, I always think when I see the drawing restraint works that it would be great to stage a show of um, like Artemisia Gentileschi or, or Lee Krasner or uh, Mary Cassatt and just call it drawing restraint. Because I feel like that's real restraint. Well, 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 on the other hand, a few years ago, there was an attempt to in a show to pair... Uh, Matthew Barney and Joseph Boys, and which I took a little bit of umbrage at because I'm uh, I'm a big Joseph Boys fan, but I also think you know, and they're very very different artists. But in terms of that, might it is more I think about it an interesting analogy of of artists who try and make a kind of microcosmic world for other people to enter into, and they're but they're not that concerned with those really drawing the viewer in. Yeah, or seducing them, except through very vivid imagery and and use of materials, and both of them pretty uh, certainly performance related sculptors. Yeah. Well, Thomas and Martin, thanks for joining us. That drawing restraint show is at Adam Art Gallery till twenty fourth of April, and if you want to dwell into the world of River of Fundament, you can head over to riveroffundament.net. <laughs> That's Circuit Cast brought to you by Crave New Zealand with music from Talautalon and you can subscribe to us through iTunes, SoundCloud or visit us at circuit.org.nz. Thanks for joining us. Mm-hmm.